on the subject of who and what is God in dealing with this theme that we've been on for some 13 weeks now on the whole counsel of God. Last Sunday, we dealt with a question that I think is, was most important, and that was, can a person be brought into a right relationship with God apart from saving faith? And we dealt with the question of the heathen. What's going to happen to the individual who never hears the gospel brought to them? Are they somehow in a state where they will be acceptable with God, or are they in a lost condition? We pointed out that without the gospel of Christ, without a saving knowledge of Christ in the heart, no man shall enter into the portals of glory. And in reflecting upon this thought, we did not have time to complete it, but it's simply this, that if the heathen be somehow in a safe condition without the gospel, then we are very unhuman in sending them the gospel. If the gospel is what condemns a person, then for heaven's sake, let's call all of our missionaries home, let's quit preaching, and let's never tell anybody about the gospel so everybody can go to heaven then. You see what the reasoning is, that if we say that somehow a person who never hears the gospel will have another chance another way, it means that God did the most inhuman thing by sending his son, because in sending his son, and whoever hears about his son and rejects is condemned, but the person who never hears is somehow going to be taken into eternal life. No, my friend, the gospel is the good news, and a person who is not, has not embraced the gospel is not in a saving relationship with Christ. Now, in order to embrace the gospel, we must know something about who this God is that sends the gospel. And so, when we ask the question, what is God, or who is God, then we'd answer this, that God is a spirit. He's infinite, eternal, he's unchangeable in his being, his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and truth. Now, the first two words of that answer as to who and what is God were this, God is. So I want to bring the message this morning on the existence or the being of God, and I'd like particularly all of you young people to listen carefully because I remember in my own youth this was a question that was very important to me. Is there a God? And how do we know there is a God? Now, to those of us that already have embraced Christ, we might think, well, that's a superficial question. But it really isn't. But for those that really are struggling with this now, perhaps particularly young people, boys and girls, you're entering into an age in which you're giving serious consideration unto the scriptures and unto the gospel, then you need to first of all answer a question, and that is, does God exist? Is he real? Does he exist? And you say, well, why, Pastor Gables, is that important? All right, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Why is it important to believe in the existence of God before we go any further? 
Why is it important to settle the matter that there is a God and he does exist before we deal with the person of Christ and the gospel? All right, the Bible gives us this answer in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If you do not, then listen as we quote this verse. Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God, now note, must believe that he is, that is, that he exists, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please this God. That takes care of our subject last week. This week, he that comes to God in faith, in performing his duty, must first of all believe that God exists. And if that question is not settled, you will never come to God. You cannot perform your duty, whatever it may be, in an acceptable way until, first of all, we believe in the existence of this God. The belief in the existence of God is the foundation of all religious worship. Before we can worship God acceptably, we must first believe in his existence and that he is who he is as declared in the Scriptures. When I ask you, suppose I ask some of you young people right here on my right, I ask you, who is God? Or where is God? How do you know anything about God? Where would you tell me to go to find this? And the answer is the God that revealed himself in the scriptures. Now, you might go over to another country and you ask that individual, do you believe in God? And they may say, yes. All right, tell us something about your God. And they take you by the hand and they take you out to the back of their little hut. And there they show you up in a tree something they've shaped with their own hands. And they say, there's my God. And they bow down to him. Nearly everyone has some conception of God, but what kind of a God is it and who is it that we are to worship? And it is the God as revealed in the Scriptures. We cannot perform our duty to God in a proper fashion unless we know who he is and what he is. And we cannot worship him at all if we do not believe in his existence. So all true worship of God comes back to this first thing, does God exist? Now, God is the first cause of all things. By that we mean that everything owes its existence to God. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, the Bible begins with these words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This same truth is brought out by Paul in the 17th chapter of Acts in verse 24. Quote, God that made the world and all things therein. The same truth. Now notice the first three words of the Bible. In the beginning, then God. The Bible does not set out to explain how God originated. Some of you young people, you hear that? The Bible does not seek to reveal where God came from because it begins with the assumption that he is and has always and will always be the eternal God. 
that before heaven and earth and all that has taken place, which we can see, before that had a beginning, God existed. Now, this shows forth the biblical conception that God is the first cause of all things. And the Bible begins by stating that everything owes its existence to God and that all things which are in existence can be traced back to this first cause, the eternal God. Now, this is understood by faith. This is understood by faith. You say, well, now, Pastor, how do you know that God has always existed? How do you know that the heavens and earth came into existence by the hands of God? All right, now, the Bible tells us, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3. Now, listen carefully. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God or were made by the word of God, so that things which are seen, now bear that in mind, things which are seen, the heavens, the earth, your fellow man, anything that we can see in the physical realm, things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. In other words, that which is visible in the creation has not always existed according to the Scriptures. But something in the realm of the invisible brought this into existence. We do not hold as Christians that the universe has always existed in the eternalness of matter. But we believe that as far back as we can go in the history of the universe and so forth, You go back so far, and then you have to find yourself confronted with something which is not observable, and the Bible calls that force God. So we understand the invisible or the unobservable through faith. Now let's make sure that that is clear. If the visible world had been formed of materials which were subject to human observation, there would have been no need for faith. That is, if heaven and earth has always existed in some form or another, there would be no need for faith. Science could trace these materials back to their origin. In other words, if the world has always existed, science and its advancements could say, here's where this came from, and this came from this, and therefore there would never be any need for faith, because all could be explained in the realm of, of the sight, that which is observable. The theory of evolution attempts to do this. But if you're here today and maybe you're wrestling with this, maybe you are influenced with the theory of evolution, that it gives a more suitable explanation of life than the fact that God is the originator of life. Let me pose something for you. The theory of evolution only pushes the question back in time as to where heaven and earth came from. 
Now, whether you believe the earth is several thousand of years old or whether you believe it's millions and billions of years old, now follow me. If I ask the question, where did I come from? Then the evolutionary theory says, you came from a lower form of life. I ask the question, where did that lower form of life come from? It came from some other form of life. And so every time I ask the question, it's merely pushed back in time. Well, where did the heavens and the earth come from? Well, they were millions and billions of years old. Now, let's even accept that if you so desire. But, beloved, as you're walking back here, you reach a certain point where you fall off of that which can be observed in the scientific realm, and you fall off into a realm which is unobservable. And when you reach that point, you must leave the realm of what is called science and go into the realm of what is called philosophy, and when you do that, you start living by faith. That is, whether you go back billions of years and you say, here is where the heavens and the earth originated, we would ask, what produced the heavens and the earth? Now, you have one or two choices. You can either say that matter has always existed, which you cannot prove, Thereby, you're stating it by faith, that which is not observable. Or else you can say that a divine creator God spoke and brought into existence that which was not in existence. Now, there is your one of two choices. And both operate in the realm of faith. Faith is understanding or receiving that which is not observable. And evolution, when it gets back to that certain point, it becomes a religion of faith. It has no first cause. Our faith is based upon God as being the first cause of everything which we see in existence. Now, having said that, let me qualify this. While we do live by faith, this faith is not irrational. Some today will say, well, I just live by faith and I, and that means I don't have to give an account of anything. But the faith which we believe in God is not irrational. Is it not far more rational to believe that an omnipotent God created the heavens and the earth than that the heavens and the earth have always existed? What's so irrational about that? While faith embraces God who cannot be seen, it is not in conflict with that which is going on or can be observed. For example, let's look out on the realm of life today. Can we observe anything giving life to itself? Can we look out and see that here is a cow giving life to itself? Is that being observed in the world today? And it is not. When you and I look out, how do we see things coming into existence? Is it not because of some other form of life gives life? A cow doesn't produce itself, it produces a calf. 
That calf was dependent upon an other source for its own life. And what is true in that realm is observably true wherever we look around the heavens and the earth. Individual life does not produce itself. That is an observable thing in science. But it's dependent upon some other object to bring it into existence. It's also observable in the realm of science today that objects are moved upon and influenced by other objects in the universe. You know what causes the wind and the rain? You know what causes the seasons to change here on earth? These are forces that are moved upon by forces outside of the earth. As the earth rotates on its axis or so forth in relation to the sun and the moon, those forces, while never coming in contact with the earth, influence what's going on here on the earth. Those of you, if you have read, you know that even the tides in the oceans, they rise and fall in relation to the moon. The moon is an immovable object, so to speak, in relation to the earth. But yet, while it never comes in contact with the earth, it influences things that goes on here on the earth. The same thing with the sun. It is also true that the feeding habits of animals are influenced by forces outside of the earth. For example, some fishermen, you talk with Mr. Hinkle on this, uh, maybe he could help you out. But some fishermen hold to a very strong theory that fish bite better in relation to the solanar, is that right? Tables, that is, in relation to the moon, about twice a day. Fish go on a feeding rampage as the moon is in a certain cycle with the earth. We know that animals are influenced by the seasonal changes in their feeding and eating and grazing habits. Now, what are we saying is this, that as these forces which are outside of earth influence and cause forces to move here on the earth, we'd ask ourselves this question, what moves the heavens and the earth? If the moon influences the earth, what influences the moon? And we would say, well, the sun. Then what forces influence the sun and all the universe? And the Bible says, God, God, the first cause, the first mover of all. Therefore, if you acknowledge in the scientific realm that the moon does affect the tides of the earth, is it irrational then to believe that the eternal God affects the moon and the stars and the planets and all? Faith is not irrational. In fact, it's far more rational than that which the so-called scientific theories would have us embrace. That is, that heaven and earth has always existed. Is that rational? Can we observe that today? Did the heaven and earth give existence to itself? Is that observable today? No, it isn't. Did the heaven and earth put itself into motion? Is that observable today? No, it isn't. There must be a first cause for all, and that first cause is God. So back of all of this, Acts chapter 17, verse 28, Paul says, For in him, that is God, 
We live and move and have our being. In God, we live and we move and we have our being. God influences all of the forces which are in the universe, even in your life and mine. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Now, if this be true, let's make an application of this doctrine. If God be the first cause, how can this doctrine be applied to us? First, we'd apply it to the professing atheist. To the individual who may be here this morning, and you make no bones about it, you say, I do not believe in the existence of God, then I have a word in which that I would pose to you this morning. Quoting from the 14th Psalm in verse 1, the Bible says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. What is a fool in the Scriptures? It's not that which we call a fool today, but a fool in the Bible is not an individual who lacks reasoning or is void of his rational faculties, but he is a person who abuses his ability to reason. In other words, a fool is not someone who is mentally deranged. A fool is someone who has rational faculties, but he abuses them. And that's why that God says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, does the atheist have a better explanation as to the origin of life than the Bible? For example, can a child give birth to a father or can a child produce a father? No, we know that there can be no child until, first of all, there is a father. But you know what the fool does? He's an idolater. He does the same thing that that individual in, in uh, Africa does. He makes him an idol, sets it up on a stand, and says, This is what made me. And God says, You're a fool. You're a fool. Whether or not you actually make a physical idol or not, you're doing the same thing. And that is, you cannot give an explanation as to the origin of your life. And so what you're doing is that you're but saying, I have always somehow existed. Psalm chapter 100, verse 3 says this. Know ye that the Lord, he is God, it is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. The psalmist says, know this, the Lord, he is God, and he hath made us, and not we ourselves. Now, what this text actually means in Psalms is this. Someone may say, well, why does a person refuse to believe in the existence of God? It's not because there isn't any evidence around. But here's the reason. Here's what this text actually means. The fool has said there is no God. Here's what it means. The fool wishes in his heart or his affections there was no God. 
The fool would like to think, he would like to wish there was no God. Now, why? He can't say it in his mind. He can't say, I can prove there is no God, but he wishes in his affections or his desires there was no God. Now, you want to know why? You want to know why, if you're here this morning and you're a professing atheist, why you refuse to acknowledge the existence of God? I'll tell you why, in the light of the Scriptures. It's because if you can do away with the existence of God, then you won't have to answer for any duty you have to render to that God. You see that? I want to read to you from the second Psalm, Psalm chapter 2. Here's a most interesting passage of Scripture that deals with individuals who do not want the knowledge of God. Psalms chapter 2 and verse 1. Why do the heathen rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? Now, what's that question asking? Why would a person rage and imagine a thing that is vain? Is anything more vain in thinking that the matter has always existed, that it did not have an origin? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Did you hear that? Here's a group of people which say they try to take counsel together, and they try to reason out that they're going to speak against God so that they can break his bands and the cords that he has over them. A person is a professing atheist for one reason, not because there isn't enough evidence to prove there's a God, but because he doesn't want to live in the light of his duty to God. And if he can break the existence of God, then he can live however he wants to, and he doesn't have to give an account of himself. How would we reply to you? Only the way the Bible does. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. You go out of this building this morning and you say, I'll never go back there again. I'll never sit under the sound of that preacher again. I don't have to take that. You go out of this building today and you look up into the heavens and there will be countless millions and billions of preachers saying, fool, fool, fool. You're a fool. There will be the sun, the moon, and all the stars pointing to you, fool, fool. And all you can reply back to that, you cannot say, well, there is no God. But all you can do in your heart is, is say, oh, I wish there was no God. Because when you do that, then you can somehow hope that maybe one day you will not have to give an account of your actions to this God. Now, the second application we would make of this is to the practical atheist. I doubt if we have many professing atheists here this morning. I used to be one. I sat in a church, and every time the preacher preached, I sat and mocked in my own heart and made fun of him. I was a professing atheist. But to the practical atheist, you say, what's the difference? Titus chapter 1 and verse 16 describes the practical atheist. They profess they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and to every good work reprobate. A practicing atheist is a person who acknowledges the existence of God, but will not live in light of that knowledge. 
In other words, they will not find out what their duty is to that God. They will acknowledge, yes, I acknowledge that you exist, but they will not look in the light of his word as to what this God wants them to do. That's practicing atheism. And our churches and our land are filled with practicing atheists. Individuals who acknowledge that God exists, but will not examine what God would have of them to do. Now, I want to interject something here and say this. Not every hypocrite in Osceola, Missouri, is a member of the First Baptist Church. Everywhere I go around here and everybody and everywhere else I've pastored and wherever I go, I always run into those when you invite them to church. I wouldn't go to that church. Your church is filled with hypocrites. Well, I acknowledge that to a degree. I acknowledge that there are tares with the wheat. I also acknowledge this. There was a hypocrite in the first church. His name was Judas, and that didn't keep Jesus and the other apostles away from meeting an assembly to worship their God. But I want to go a little bit further. You may be here this morning, you may be saying, well, I'm not a member of this church and I don't associate with this church, but I'm just as good as anybody else. I doubt that. I doubt that. Not all hypocrites are members of the First Baptist Church of Osceola. They're all over this community. And you want to know why? You can go out there and you can ask them, do you believe in God? And I haven't run across one yet here in Osceola who said, no, I don't believe in God. But you ask them another question. Are you seeking out the scriptures to find out what your duty is to that God? And they'll say, no, they're a practicing atheist. They have light given to them. They know that God exists, but they don't want their duty in the light of that word. Now, that means that they may blame and say, well, I don't have to worship God because the First Baptist Church of Osceola is filled with hypocrites. Therefore, I'm not responsible to God. Now, wait just a minute. Do you take God's word, and even though you don't come to this church or any other church, do you take his scriptures and diligently seek to know what God would have you do? You've already condemned yourself, because I know better. I've been in your homes. I've seen that the Bible is a dusty old book with you. You never read it. So you may think, well, I, because the church is filled with hypocrites, I'm not responsible. You have a Bible and you yourself acknowledge there is a God, but you will not seek that Bible to find out what your duty is. You're a practicing atheist. In other words, you're another Madeline Murray. Not much difference. You may hear her get on TV and lamb blast the Christians, but what's the difference in having an individual who will not seek out their duty in light of God when they profess there is a God? Now, one more application that we would make of this doctrine that God has always existed, and that is this, to the despairing sinner. If you're here this morning... And maybe through the workings of the scriptures and the workings of the Holy Spirit, you're beginning to cry out with the Philippian jailer, Oh, what must I do? Is there any hope for me? Is there any hope? And I say to you that because God is the first cause and he does exist, there is hope. I have good news for you who are despairing this morning. 
You say, Pastor Gables, you don't know my case. You don't know how wicked and how evil my heart is. And you don't know that how many times I've tried to believe in Jesus Christ, and I just can't do it. I just can't seem to find the ability to trust in Jesus Christ. There is no hope for me. Ah, but there is, my friend. The same God who before the heavens and the earth came into existence spake and said, Let there be light, and there was light, can speak light into your being even now. The same God which created all things can create faith within your heart right now. You say, oh, there's no mercy for me. There's no chance for me. Ah, but there is that same God who created all the planets and the stars and man can also create mercy for you. And if you're here today despairing with no hope, the fact that God exists and that he's all-powerful in all things owe oh, their existence to him, you also can look unto him, all ye ends of the earth, and be ye saved. For I am God, and there is none other. Look unto him, and he which spake can also speak light into you. Cry out, O God, even now come, and change this heart of stone into a heart of flesh. I can't believe, but God, if you created the heavens and the earth, you can also create faith in me. To the despairing sinner, there's hope because of the existence of God. Are you in that position today? Do you find yourself crying out, Oh, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. Do you earnestly desire to have a working of God done within your life to enable you to sing the praises of Jesus Christ. And if you tried and tried of your own efforts and you're just about to reach the point and say, I can't do it, it's impossible, I'm but a creature, I can't meet the demands of God. But there's hope when you reach that point. Well, that same God which spoke and the mountains were formed and the valleys were formed and the sea and the light was separated from darkness can also speak and say, let there be light. And the same God who rules the waves can also speak and say, peace, be still. Look unto him. There's hope in that kind of a God. Shall we stand together?